Welcome to the Toxic People Detox, a practical guide for finding peace in the midst of toxic people. It's not about changing them, it's about changing how you respond to them and doing so in a productive, healthy way. My name is Dr. Shayla D. Williams, and my next guest is Asha Terry. Asha Terry is a certified life coach and licensed psychotherapist. As a treating provider, Asha has the experience and skill to transform lives. The work she provides as a life coach to individuals, couples, groups, and small business entrepreneurs is based in the philosophy that we all need each other to grow and develop as human beings. Asha's unique approach to life coaching is based on innate desire to see people succeed and live a life by design with love and purpose. She is curious, transparent, and supportive of her clients in fulfilling their goals. With almost 18 years of experience in the industry of social services, who would expect anything less? Welcome to the show, Asha. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Williams. How are you? I'm just great. What part of the U.S. are you in right now? I'm in the Northeast, specifically New York. Northeast, so uh, your state is still in lockdown? Yes. New York is going through changes almost daily, but we are still required to wear masks every day outside and to stay indoors as much as we can. I'm downwind of you. We're somewhat opened up, but no one, I don't see anybody anywhere, really. Oh. Like no one wants to go out. Yeah, not quite here is it like that because New Yorkers are very um, rebellious people. <laughs> so you <laughs> I went outside yesterday to run an errand and I was actually quite surprised how many people were out walking their pets and, you know, grabbing coffee. Yeah, it's a lot less, but definitely people are still out here. You talk about in our communications that, you know, there are some healthy ways to set boundaries, particularly in these times. I mean, we're all cooked up in a house. How exactly can you maintain these boundaries? A couple of ways. So depending on the circumstance, if you're working from home and there are other adults working from home too, I think it's really important to communicate the timeframes that people are on because people work typically nine to five or eight to four, but also there are lots of people who work very late at night or work late mornings to late evenings. And so it's really important that you communicate that with people that you live with. If there are different places in the home that people can segment workstations, that would also be really helpful. And if you're a person who's working from home and you have children, there's that extra special condition of, you having to work and then of course having to check in with your children. So that might mean rehearsing with your kids certain things like this is where mommy or daddy is going to work for the day. And if you need me, you can come and knock on the door, but please don't walk in because I may be in a meeting or I may be sitting in front of a computer having an interview and someone can see you. Or you may even want to block times off on your calendar and write those notes down on the fridge for the kids to read them and say, these are the times you can come in and check with me or talk with me. And if you're also home and there are other people in the house that are homeschooling or working, you may want to even press the ways in which it's best to reach out to you. So instead of walking into your room or walking into your office, maybe send a text um, or check in every 60 to 90 minutes, depending on the age of the children in the household, so that people could respect the boundaries that, yes, we're home, but yes, there's school going on, there's work going on, we have to stay focused. Just being very clear is really important. 
All right. So let's say you and I are siblings. We're probably about 10 and we just start fighting and we just get on each other's nerves. Then how do you how do you deal with that? Because I, I know sometimes tempers can flare, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm dealing with a lot of clients who have siblings at home or they're the child in the home of their parents. And it's getting a little sticky. <laughs> People, especially here in New York, have been working from home for more than a month, some for two months. It's been, for some, pretty enjoyable. For many others, it's been very anxiety-inducing. And now it's when, after weeks of us settling into the system routine, not going on the train or not driving into the office and just being in the house all day with other people, yeah, they're starting to pick up on the small things that irritate them. Someone eats too loud or uh, someone's in the bathroom first when you know that they should be aware that you have to start earlier than they do. It's all of these small things that when we were on the go, it was probably easy to overlook because most people spent their waking hours outside of their home. And now it's the complete opposite. So yeah, it's, it's going to happen. Normalize it. It's good to just call it out when you see it. And it's important to do maybe a beginning of week or an end of week check-in. Just, hey, what are the, the things that you really need from me this week? Do you need me to, you know, maybe do my own food prep at a different hour? Or should we grocery shop together to just lessen the load of each of us having to run in and out of the house a lot? Communication's going to get sticky, but this is probably where people will have to over-communicate in order to be able to express what the needs are and the needs could change week to week. Do you see a difference in how, say, a primarily extroverted person versus a primarily introverted person would be handling this situation? Absolutely. I have a few clients that were experiencing extreme levels of anxiety prior to COVID. And fortunately, a lot of those clients are faring quite well during this time because, in essence, they were doing preventative care. So those clients that I've been working with continually, they're doing well being introverts, not having to go out in public all the time or take public transportation. So for a lot of them, this time is quite enjoyable, quite peaceful compared to other times for them. The people who are used to being social and I have colleagues as well as clients like that, they're a little bit more fearful of what's to come, especially with summer approaching. They're doing most of the reading regarding how that's going to be because they're used to being a lot more free with their time, especially when the days off or after hours meeting up with friends. And so those people who are extroverts are struggling a little bit more than the introverts in some ways because there's so many limitations on where we could go and for how long we could be out. And so trying to help them to stave off some of the anxiety looks like finding creative ways to socialize and checking in with yourself periodically to know when too much is too much and enough is too not enough. But it is going to take maybe us getting through the next couple of weeks and moving into the summer to see how people are actually going to do. It's hard to predict. Right, of course. You said look for creative ways to socialize. Can you give an example of something you would say to an extroverted person? Yeah, so we've seen so much you probably have heard of club quarantine, this international musical festival that's going on almost daily on social media by DJ D Nice. And it's made so many news outlets because it started off as a small 200 person party with just his closest industry friends. 
And eventually within a week, it turned into 103,000 people on Instagram, including Michelle Obama, Janet Jackson, and J-Lo showing up at the party. And so a lot of people are meeting there on the weekdays after work, on the weekends now. He now also has club quarantine after hours. So at night, you can get a little wind down. And that's been very enjoyable because people are seeing their friends in there. They're chatting in there online and Instagram Live. That's a big way that many people across the world have communicated not only with their friends, but other people in the industry, celebrities. And I found that my friends and my family have also discovered apps to see each other on, to play games on. That's been quite enjoyable. It's unique. And it's something that people have found possible with different ages. So if you have kids, you have older people, everybody can use the app House Party as an example to go online and socialize and play. That's been quite interesting for people. And even here in New York, where we are incubating ourselves, as most people are calling social distancing, but I like to use the term social incubating, there Mm -hmm. are people that are going out and they're doing activities to a certain degree in public, but they're doing it in groups with people who they live with. And that's not necessarily discouraged, but you have to be mindful of what types of activities you can do. So no, people are not supposed to barbecue. We've been seeing people doing that, but people can go outside and they can play and they can exercise in small groups together if they're in the same household and that's been allowed. People can go for walks, they can walk their pets. I've even seen people doing social gatherings in small groups, almost like outdoor picnics with people and one and two person parties. So those are some of the ways so far we've been able to see creativity spur from this and we'll probably continue to. It'll be a matter of time just to see like, okay, what else can we do? Can we do a sip and paint or can we do a crocheting party? I've encouraged Mm -hmm. people to start group activities and start hobbies on social media. Yeah. Okay. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't even hear about the club pump thing. Quarantine? Oh, Dr. Woods is fantastic. It's on Instagram every day under D Nice, DJ D Nice. It's amazing. Okay. Let's get back to the home. We're all here. And let's say there's some issues coming out. I gave the example before about us fighting. So how can you express dissatisfaction in, say, more intimate relationships between husband and wives or whatnot without offending or hurting the other person? That's a great question. I tell my couples that unintentional wounding is inevitable in relationships. Mm -hmm. No one wants to, you know, with the exception of, of course, someone much more severely ill, but most people are not that ill. When you think about relating to people that you care about, no one intentionally wants to hurt those that they love. But we can't avoid that. And we can't avoid that because we don't know from which perspective things are viewed. People have their own lens they're looking at and looking through. And so when we think about what's the intent behind what you need to communicate, start there. And especially when you're feeling overwhelmed by a lot of things that could be upsetting or irritating you, start with the one that's the most difficult and just leave first with the positive. What do you appreciate? What have you enjoyed? What would you like to see more of? Start there so that the person can be on alert to listen 
but not on alert to defend, which is what we tend to do when we feel judged or blamed. So start with the positive, and then from there, in turn to, I would like more of or would appreciate if we could do X, Y, Z. You know, so be specific. Maybe it's you would appreciate if you weren't the only one washing dishes, and and so how could that be helpful to you both, so that it's not something that you're doing or you're expecting you're going to receive help on, but you haven't communicated that. Express what it does for you. It makes me feel loved. It makes me feel thought about when you also volunteer to wash dishes. And I would appreciate it if you could participate in that a little bit more often. You see how that could lay on someone's ears much differently than why am I the only person to do the dishes? Don't you see the dishes are piling up? So when we're dissatisfied, we have to expect that sometimes when we're worked up, it's going to come across differently than maybe we're intending it to. So we may want to pause, reflect, think about what your intention is and enter positive first, and then exercise what it is you'd like to see or experience more of. That makes sense. There's people who have died. And so you see news, people can't go to the funerals. How is that affecting people who are being left behind? Particularly, how is it affecting the children? That's a wonderful question to ask about grief. (sighs) This time is, is so precarious. We don't quite know what to expect with how people have already dealt with previous grief. One of the things I've been working on with my clients who never had a model for them, how dealing with grief would look. They didn't grow up in a family that talked about death. They didn't know they'd experienced death. They didn't have examples of what healthy grieving looked like, including that people can cry or yell or sometimes feel really low mood. They have ways to memorialize loved ones. So for them, they're starting at ground zero with this. And it may be difficult for people who have not expected to have their loved one go into a hospital and not come back out. So the unexpected grief that can arise from something like this can feel very much of a like a robbing of one's experience. And so that would then require us to sit with it. Thankfully, we have hopefully a little bit more time to do so, so that we could sit with that grief. Grief has no timeline. It's very invasive. It's unpredictable. And when we are with children who are also losing parents or siblings or grandparents of this disease, it's important for the adults we like to take the lead in talking about it, even if you assume they're not sad or they're not worried about people who remain in their lives getting sick or themselves getting sick. We shouldn't pretend that children of any age can't understand sadness, which is really what grief is, is a deep sorrow for the death of someone we love. But grief is also many other things of loss that we can bear. So checking out the children, speaking to them at their developmental level, and getting down to their eye level if they're that young to be able to say, you know, how do you feel today? Do you want to draw me a picture about what you feel and, and what you want to say? And then I'm here. And then you go back and you periodically check in, not in a bombarding way, like every day. How's it going? What do you feel? Do you want to talk about it? But just gently noticing, being present, showing up. And even when the adults are sad, allowing yourself to be sad so that the kids could see it's okay. That's the way you mirror for them that it's all right to show sadness. Mm -hmm. And what if 
you didn't maybe lose someone per se, but you know someone. How do you approach them or how can you be with them without trying to pry or make them grieve the way you want them to grieve? I know you don't go to people. I know how you feel. Wait, no, you don't. Don't say that. (laughs) So grief can be compounded. Mm -hmm. It can bring up triggers for us if we've lost someone in the past and then we experience someone else we know that could have lost a loved one. And so grief has that tendency of also, in some cases, leaving us feeling guilty that we survived. Survivor's guilt is very common. So when we experience our own compounded grief or we know someone who's experiencing grief of their own, one way to do this in Grief expert David Kessler said this so eloquently about his book, um, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, that you get to be witness and I get to be witness. So as you share your story and I listen, and then I can share my story and hopefully you can listen. But not making it about you is really important too. If there's someone that's going through a present day grief, a recent loss, it's okay to simply say, where can I meet you in terms of just where you are emotionally? Is there something you feel I can be available for? And if you're not sure of what else to do, you can say so. I think that's the elephant in the room. Most people feel at a loss of words. It's okay to say, mm-hmm. I really don't know what to say, mm. but I'm here. Okay. You have a book coming out. Tell us the title and uh, tell us a bit about it. I do. That's one of the things I'm looking forward to. This quarantine was super helpful for me in getting the book completed, although I started it back at um, the end of 2019. It's called Adulting as a Millennial, Everything Your Parents Didn't Teach You. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a book that's dedicated to my deceased father who passed last September because he really was the reason for this book to come about at this time. He definitely contributed to the woman that I am today. And when I think back to my most fondest memories from the time I really started to be an observer of myself, which was in my teen years, to this very present moment, there were a lot of great stories I had to tell. And I work with so many millennials and know so many millennials and a lot of them follow me on social media that I really felt a connection to them on an intimate level because of the work that I do and people that are in my life. But also I felt a responsibility to them that I'm of an age where I'm not in the generation before theirs, but I'm also in a particular age in my life where I have some wisdom to impart. And I thought the best way I could do it is to put in a book. There's no possible way I could reach every millennial in the work that I do as a coach and a therapist, but certainly They can pick up a book and get the anecdotes and get the questions and hopefully have some reflections from each chapter come up off the page and just sort of hit them in the face and say, I never thought about that that way. Or this is something I personally struggle with in my life. And this is a great tip to take away with me because I see so many young adults who don't have mentors. They don't sometimes have older siblings that they're close to. And there's gap between values and also perspectives in terms of the lives that they are living parallel to the lives that the parents have lived. So there's not a lot of, I think, carryover from one generation to the other in terms of 
how they take information in not and not do it personally, how important it is to establish relationships and maintain them, meaning they have to actually show up and do something and do that consistently throughout their lives. And to also not feel as if they need to know everything at this age because no one does. And that's okay. Right. And do you think uh, that now mm-hmm. some of the issues with millennials is rooted in that participation trophy syndrome? Mm. Like somehow that we're entitled, a guide to everything your parents didn't teach you. You're not entitled to everything. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't owe you. Is that part of your book too? Or something like that? I decided not to put that in there because that has been the thread of judgment, I would say, a lot of us, because mm. I had that same feeling, had for a long time about yeah. millennials. And I thought uh-huh. if I led with that or I put that in the book, it would take away from everything else that I'm trying to provide them with, which is self-introspection, a way of looking at things differently. And where I think that there is something important about understanding certain rights to living life a certain kind of way, that is still going to look different to every individual. And and what I want them to take away from it is not that you can work less and earn more and somehow still be entitled to it just because you exist, but that you understand there are levels to achieving things. And that includes being present in mind and being intentional about what you're doing and remembering that there's an other. There's always an other. It's not everywhere you go, it's only about you. It's everywhere you go, there's a you and others. And I think, you know, angling it from that way opens up a path for them to see, yeah, you're right. Maybe that has a lot to do with why my relationships are a certain way or I don't quite securely attach to other people, even going back into a little bit of what my childhood was like, but not blaming my parents and just, knowing that they did the best they could. And so what do I have to give back to the world that can change that? And feeling comfortable as they practice living, practice adulting, that it'll come to them. And so I wanted to kind of change the way that that was introduced instead of coming at at them in a way that I think they may have walked away feeling more blame and shame instead of walking away feeling empowered and giving them tools that they could work with. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because... Like you say, it's it's crossed my mind many times, but you have to be mindful of what you say because uh, it's like the example you gave earlier about trying to uh, engage someone you love. You don't come at them with judgment. Mm-hmm. You have to be open. Maybe it's it's a you know. Could you please help me with the dishes? You come at it different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. it's um it's a skill for sure that I think we all have to work on because we do it in our adult lives with people that we're close to. What makes us think that, you know, it's not going to happen in other generations that maybe just look different? You know, everybody in some way has um, a way of assuming that there's things people should just know. And and that's us thinking that younger people should just know that it's not all about you. But why should they know that if for a long time they've grown up with everything being given to them? And so if they don't notice that there's people who've worked hard and they don't see the back ends of things and then they grew in a time where social media made everything look like it was acquired easily, 
there is there is a different way of understanding them and understanding that technology, although it's good when it was introduced into the world, has had tremendous negative impact on the psychology of people's brains. So it's not completely their fault, but it's also not something that we can just say, well, they'll outgrow it. No, I think more adults have to find creative ways within themselves to be patient enough to want to say, this is how you relate to other people. This is why someone may not offer you something. This is partly what you can do to change that. And it's teaching them life skills, ultimately, that a lot of people had to learn on their own. We have to teach them a little bit differently and a little bit probably more frequently than we had to do that or I had to do that. <laughs> yeah. You're right. And I agree with the technology. I mean, mm -hmm. it's supposed to make our lives better, but somehow it's made us more isolated, it seems. It has. It's it's not only made us isolated, it's created social anxiety, social awkwardness, because it took people out of being in the present with others and made everything very in the moment important and very mm -hmm. focused on distractibility instead of you can be uncomfortable and if you were uncomfortable and didn't have a cell phone in your hand, you'd probably figure out how to deal with that discomfort over time. Or you might even acknowledge that you're a little bit awkward and that might be your thing and, and makes you stand out and unique and you may grow to love that. I mean, this woman, Issa Rae, has a whole show <laughs> and storyline about that on her title show, Insecure, that came from a blog she wrote many years ago. People are now embracing their uniqueness and their awkwardness. But that's also because there was less involvement with social media at one point than there is now. But we have millions of young adults who grew up in the era of being in front of the television, being in front of the video games, and not getting outside and playing with kids their age, or not going to camp, or not learning social skills. So if you had them housed <laughs> up and had devices in front of them, what did we expect would happen when they grew up? Of course. You know, I love your perspective on me. <laughs> I always get something different than what I expect, so I like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. So in closing out, where can people find you? Great question. I'm really easy to find on three main platforms. First is Instagram, because I'm there every day under my first and last name, Asha Tari Mental. So people sort of take that away that I'm a mental health provider. So Asha Tari Mental on Instagram, and that's T like Tom, A-R-R-Y. On Twitter, just Asha Tari. And then I'm on LinkedIn under my company's name, BH Consulting Services is where people can connect with me on LinkedIn. And most important, I want people to get something from me. I'm here with a breadth of information and resources and coaching tips. Go to my blog at lifecoachasha, really simple, .com, and sign up for my blog. We drop a new one each Tuesday morning. We offer some anecdotes as well as some coaching help and support. Questions are there. And then my village comments and shares and we try to connect with other people around the world and build communities. So if you were looking to work with me, audit my work. That's the best way to do it. And you can book a discovery call there. So go to lifecoachasha.com. Excellent. Awesome. Awesome. Before we go, just a side note, is it Dr. Asha Terry? How would you, what is your title? No, it's simply Asha Terry. I'm a, a okay. LMSW, a licensed master social worker therapist and a CLC, a certified life coach. But I do get that question a lot. So I've, 
just starting to think about my PhD, but for a long time, people would call me Dr. Terry or ask me that, and I had to keep saying, no, I'm not a doctor, although I'm a psychotherapist, because that means for a lot of people, you're a psychologist, but Mm -hmm. um, the track of social worker and um, other people in different um, industries can do mental health work, so I'm a psychotherapist, social worker. Okay, I'm relieved because I'm thinking, wait, I, I, I didn't see a doctor. <laughs> no. And even if I did have a doctorate, I think I would probably just tell people to look for me, Asha. Okay, then. In closing, I like to give my guests the final word. So any bit of wisdom that you would like to share with my audience? Yes, it's the thing I've been saying all week around grief. And that is, everywhere you go, there you are. So... I hope that leaves people with something mindful that instead of us feeling ashamed of ourselves or guilt with where we are emotionally and mentally during this time, it's all right. It's fine to be there. You'll most likely survive it. Many people have before. So just be right where you are. That's the only place you have at the very moment that you have it. So wherever you are, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs>